This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp and Insider Protocol. I think this experiment in Canada is proving to the rest of the world that yes, this is a legitimate asset class. It is a viable investment vehicle, but it's also here to stay. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. This week, we'll be diving into the world of crypto ETFs. An ETF, or exchange-traded fund, is a vehicle through which an investor can access a diversified portfolio of crypto tokens or coins. Proponents say that they offer greater transparency and liquidity. And as an added bonus, investors don't need to manage multiple digital wallets and their need to track the performance of any individual token is mitigated. Also, the regulated status of ETFs means that they potentially offer an investment vehicle for compliance-constrained institutional investors like retirement funds. The thing is, you may well have indirect investments in crypto without even knowing it. Many of the best-known index funds, like the S&P 500 or total market funds, include publicly traded companies that have some involvement with the industry, maybe by mining crypto, being involved in the development of blockchain technology, or holding significant amounts of crypto on their balance sheets. There are also blockchain technology-focused ETFs with stock portfolios of companies that have gone big into the space. I'll let this week's guest expert talk us through why ETFs are important to the evolution of the crypto industry, but let's run first through a quick primer on how these things tend to work. In traditional ETFs, the fund provider owns the underlying assets, stocks or commodities. Shares from these are what are sold to investors. So similarly, any fund manager offering a crypto ETF needs to own the underlying assets, that is, whatever tokens or currencies it wishes to track. By owning the shares of the fund, investors thereby directly own the tokens or other underlying assets. If a Bitcoin ETF eventually proved in the United States, it would operate like any other ETF. But instead of tracking a market exchange like the S&P 500 or Dow Jones, it would track the price of Bitcoin. And when the price of Bitcoin increases, so would a share of the price of the ETF. It probably won't come as a shock that interest in a Bitcoin ETF is quite high. According to a Fidelity survey of 1,100 professionals worldwide, connected between December and April, more than 60% of US investors expressed a neutral to positive view about a potential Bitcoin ETF. But there currently are no approved Bitcoin ETFs in the United States. And there aren't really many other options for investors as crypto ETFs are not even being considered in many other parts of the world either. The first attempt to put a Bitcoin ETF up for consideration happened back in 2013. And there have been 18 applications since then have either been rejected or delayed. Just this week, Invesco and Galaxy Digital jointly find a registration statement for a physically backed Bitcoin ETF. In January of 2018, the SEC turned down plans to set up ETFs for Bitcoin and other crypto, expressing concerns about potential market manipulation, fraud, and volatility. On June of this 16th of this year, in 2021, 
the SEC said it's further delaying its decision on whether to approve a Bitcoin ETF. However, SEC Chair Gary Gensler recently signaled there could be a path forward for an ETF backed not by spot Bitcoin prices, but by Bitcoin futures. That statement prompted a slate of fresh proposals for funds that could comply with such a model. In parallel, Canada has forged ahead, allowing fund managers to offer crypto in an ETF wrapper. This past April, the Ontario Securities Commission approved the launch of three different ETFs that would offer investors direct exposure to Ether. Now, there's no question a crypto ETF would be a major step in bringing crypto to U.S. investment portfolios. It would give American investors the ability to invest in digital currencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum or others without having to learn to trade on a crypto exchange. And that process can be complicated. Plus, such an ETF could be traded directly from investors' existing brokerage accounts. I'm excited to hear from this week's guest, Fred Pye, who is the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of 3IQ Corp, as well as the Chairman of 3IQ Digital Holdings Incorporated. Mr. Pye is recognized for creating and promoting creative and unique investment products for the investment industry. He has a long career managing private client portfolios and previously worked for a company dedicated to managing and distributing quantitative investment portfolios, including the very first long short mutual fund in Canada. Before we bring Fred in, let's welcome my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hi, Sheila. So, you know, it continues to be this hot time for regulation. Certainly the SEC is making all kinds of waves. And this announcement basically, or hint, I suppose, is really more accurate from Gary Gensler about this path forward for Bitcoin futures for this kind of ETF is really interesting. You know, something people have been watching for a long time. He made this about a month or so ago, but it sort of is an indication of how regulation really does set the tone for where people go because we've had a flurry of new proposals trying to come up with a futures-backed version of what an ETF would be after having all these other proposals beforehand. So yeah, once again, an indication that the power of what that office holds in terms of setting the tone of where this technology is headed. You know, there are some funds that are already built basically on spot prices. And so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how this whole thing gets shaped. But I would love to bring in Fred and really just kind of get into this with you, Fred. We'd love to get your take on the relevance of this kind of futures model. Like, what do you think about the SEC's indication that futures might be acceptable where spot prices aren't? Well, it's great to be with you both, Sheila and Michael. And, you know, we've been in this regulated Bitcoin challenge since like 2014, 2015. And, you know, Gensler's recent comments about being within a regulated framework by using futures because you've got the CME and the CFTC that can regulate it is one big step for the United States. However, in Canada, we went the other way. We basically applied to uh, launch a closed-ended fund on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It's a great story because we were just about to get there and get over the line. And the person at the OSC we were working with got a horrible pancreatic cancer and passed away. So we had to go back in 2017 and start over from square one. And when we got to square one again, they came up with a hard no. And they said, we're saying no because of audit, because of custody issues, because of pricing issues, because of market manipulation issues. And then the big stick in Canada is it's not in the public interest. So what we can do in Canada is you can go to a private hearing and we did not pass the private hearing, but then we have the option of going to a public hearing. And in October of 2019, we got a full judgment from the commission that said this is properly constituted. The beauty about a closed-end fund that buys spot Bitcoin is it's one trading desk 
buying all of Bitcoin and they can trace and track all the Bitcoin that we own. And by launching this in March of 2020, unfortunately, it was like day one of COVID setting in. Our $100 million book went to basically zero or 15 million. We launched anyways. Today, we're just shy of three and a half billion Canadian. But the reality is, is it opened up the door for the regulators to look at the other structures, such as the ETF, which gives people a little bit more clarity in terms of daily price movement and product pricing. So we really opened up the doors for the space that has now got Bitcoin and Ether ETFs in Canada. It's an incredible story that you just told us. And the idea that there was this person who was kind of championing this on the regulatory side, and then obviously horrible what happened there. But the reality is that, you know, that this is still the case that these individuals within regulatory agencies who have maybe a broader understanding of this space or the challenges and benefits of it or whatnot are driving some of this. I just wanted to note that because it is an extraordinarily powerful, but also somewhat shocking thing to think that, you know, it's individuals within these agencies that are really driving so much of the awareness and not even the broader market necessarily. And it is obviously you have a champion of digital assets in the United States with Hester Pierce, and she's very articulate. She raises her points properly. But the reality is there's still people that don't understand Bitcoin. They don't understand that all it is is a natural evolution of the internet. I call it the secure value transfer protocol. It's no different than live streaming. It's no different than voice over an internet protocol or the granddaddy of email. These are just internet protocols. You know, the value transfer protocol is here to stay. We now can move ownership, value, title, and money over the internet for free. This changes the entire world. Yet we have the regulators that are sitting there saying, well, we don't get it yet. Well, we understand their concerns about money laundering, about market manipulation, and Canada figured out how to solve that by going with the cash-based ETFs that we have. After climbing 1,400% in total value locked last year, DeFi continues to quickly innovate over traditional finance and is on track to become the financial infrastructure of tomorrow. This new infrastructure has unique security needs, and QuantStamp has already secured over $100 billion worth of digital assets for the best projects in the space. Visit quantstamp.com blog to learn why DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and BarnBridge trust QuantStamp to fulfill their security needs. That's quantstamp.com blog to learn more. The Insider Protocol presents the first high-frequency trading Bitcoin bot. Our upcoming version 2.0 algorithms are specifically made for our hedge fund clients, but we're making them available for you. Besides going to Binance.Launchpad, the team will be integrating Binance Smart Chain into the ecosystem in the first quarter of 2022. The Insider Protocol is an entire ecosystem of projects consisting of Atlas Dex Swap, a Mimblewimble-based blockchain, DeFi, and our upcoming Dex Change. For more information, visit InsiderProtocol.com. That's InsiderProtocol.com. Is there anything, though, about the different structure of these marketplaces? You know, it's a classic round hole, square peg problem, where you've got you know, 24-7 markets traded in all these various unregulated markets that set prices. 
you have a sort of an entirely different settlement structure. And you know, you've got a traditional stock market that has all these different set of rules. You know, it seems that sometimes is held up as an excuse, but then Forex is a 24-7 market. There's lots of different examples of you know, different products and prices that have been squeezed into this model. What is your experience in Canada able to show to, say, US regulators as to what is possible and what's not? Do you see yourselves as something as a guinea pig for the rest of the world to be looking at? Well, first of all, 3IQ, we've listed our Bitcoin fund, our closed-end fund in Dubai. You know, we were listed on exchange in Gibraltar. We have intentions of bringing that closed-end fund around the world. But our ETFs were really quite simple. But again, the biggest one in Canada that we had was there's a very famous failure of a company called Quadriga CX, which was an exchange where the guy died in India, if he's dead, and 115,000 Canadians lost over $250 million. And basically that disaster allowed us to say, you know, it's time to regulate this space. You know, it is in the public interest to have a regulated product. And that's where the courts agreed with us and said, yes, it's time to get up and regulate this space. And again, the regulators, and this is the difference between Canada and the United States, is the regulators, if we are properly constituted, meaning proper audit, proper custody, proper pricing, and to your question, Michael, all these unregulated exchanges 24 hours a day, we had to build and design with Vanek and MVS our own index that took only to consideration exchanges that have no reputational risk or they're all regulated of some sort and there's no price manipulation or product manipulation. So we had to prove all of this in pricing and market manipulation in order to create that perfect pricing index that we did. And then the bottom line became is it is in the public interest to have this space regulated because 5% of Canadians already own digital assets anyways. And that's the difference. It's interesting, like you said, there's a need for a regulated product here. And it often strikes me that in an ideal world, ETFs wouldn't exist, certainly for Bitcoin, because the proposition, at least from the early days of what Bitcoin was proposed as, was you know, a be-your-own-bank thing where you own your own money. The whole point is the sort of self-sovereign controller of it. But of course, we live in the reality of these compliance-obsessed institutions. And we kind of need a regulatory hack in a way to bring all that money into Bitcoin. But I suppose one of the things we focus on a bit on this show is, are we now just overly institutionalizing Bitcoin itself? What do you say to the server critics? I mean, or not even that, do you see a pathway for which this world, you know, the regulated institutional investment in ETFs world marries with, say, the conversation in El Salvador right now about, you know, trading Bitcoin for buying and selling coffee or whatever? Well, again, Bitcoin has grown up a lot in the last 12 years. And really, Bitcoin has gone from this global decentralized currency into really institutions are looking at as the store of wealth. There's not a debate amongst institutions. Is money going digital? Yes or no? Of course it is. And it's going digital in our lifetime. But that more plays to the DeFi space, the Ethereum blockchain and Ether and smart contracts and creating digital stable coins, of which 3IQ is a very important part of. But in reality, Bitcoin itself now is being looked at as an alternative store of wealth. And it has to be considered that way. But the right part 
the massive amount of institutionalization that everybody says is coming there, it hasn't come yet. No pension funds have investment policy statements that allow them to invest in digital assets. So therefore, you have to get into the alternative asset class. Well, I think we're one of the only few companies in the world that has a three-year track record in a global digital asset fund. So these pension funds and these asset managers have to do their due diligence and it has to take time and you have to be able to understand. And there's only a handful of us managers doing this worldwide. We just happen to be a digital asset manager that got into the ETF business, as opposed to what we're seeing as ETF companies trying to you know, jump on the bandwagon and get into the digital asset business. Do you see a world where when these things are approved, because they will be regulated, that this becomes a commonplace investment? I mean, are, is it going to be at IRAs and 401ks and like to your point, you know, pension funds? Is there really interest in that? I mean, certainly the returns have been great over the course of time, but what is your sense of that? Our number one clients are investment advisors. An investment advisor, to your point, Michael, isn't going to open up a wallet for his 1,400 clients. They're going to go buy a regulated prospectus-based exchange-listed liquid, low-fee product, and they're going to use that for their clients that they can get in and they can get out of. It's tracked for tax purposes. You don't have to worry about losing your keys. I think, you know, it just makes it simple to get into there. Now, there's three reasons you buy it. The people that already understand the technology have probably already bought it, number one. Number two is you're buying it for diversification purposes. Bitcoin is completely not correlated to any other asset class that an investor invests in. In Canada, we proved that a standard 60-40 portfolio with a 2% position in Bitcoin would have doubled your total returns of that portfolio over the last five years. And people say volatility is bad. No, non-correlated volatility adds to Sartina ratios, add to sharp ratios, add to total portfolio performance. So the more sophisticated advisors now in hedge funds are looking at actual fiscal numbers and running them through the grinding machine and finding out that we've got a beautiful asset class here that's not correlated. And that's kind of like the ultimate search for the average investment advisor or hedge fund manager. We're looking for that perfect non-correlated asset class. And it's here. It's already here. So given that this is the case, and this is an observable phenomenon over some time now, this isn't kind of a one-year-long sort of thing, to your point, it's been like over a decade that we've seen some of this growth. Why do you think that it's taken so long in the United States? Price manipulation, which seems to be at least the talking point or the concern, which is a legitimate concern, of course, and certainly along with many of the concerns expressed by regulators in the United States, including the SEC. But that isn't so much the case today. And so the market is just much more advanced and transparent than it used to be. So what do you think is going on? Well, Sheila, that's really why I think we're going to get there is because it does take time, right? It took four and a half years in Canada. It's already been you know, eight years in the United States, at least, while we've been trying to get these things public. And it will get there. It's all about education, but it's also understanding what the regulators are responsible for. And it's not their job to remove volatility from the markets. It's not their job to remove risk-taking from the markets. Their job is to make sure you are completely surrounded by investor protections. And that's against fraud. That's against all the other things. And again, I think this experiment in Canada is proving to the rest of the world that, yes, this is a legitimate asset class. 
It is a viable investment vehicle, but it's also here to stay. The blockchain is here to stay and it's not going away. So we hope that the U.S. steps up to the plate and really realizes that technology development is a very important part of where the U.S. is trying to go. And that was the same with Canada and the province of Ontario. Decisions have to be made if it advances technological development within the province. And we use that as part of our arguments to win. People will talk about ETH ETFs. And there is, interestingly, a number of proposals for things like DeFi ETFs. Are they getting ahead of themselves is the first question. And I mean, how would you construct an ETF based upon something as complex as DeFi, which necessarily requires these decentralized, unregulated exchanges at their core? Have you guys looked into any of this? We have, actually. We do have, you know, in the works, our digital yield fund, which is, you know, decentralized finance. But DeFi, really, you know, I'd like to say it's as simple as stable coins. And you're going to love this story, Michael, because we do partially own a company called Canada Stable Corp. And Canada Stable Corp issues what at the time was called QCAT. It's now VCAT. It's a joint venture with a Schedule A chartered bank called VCAT. And, you know, when the president of VersaBank got called by Paris at B in Ottawa and Canada, they said, you know, how can you make these digital Canadian currencies? And he said, well, remember when we were in the 70s and 80s and we were hippies backpacking around Europe? He says, what did we use as money? And they all go, American Express Traveler's Check. I said, what was an American Express Traveler's Check? It was a paper representation of a deposit at a Canadian chartered bank. He says, all we're doing is giving you a digital representation of a deposit at a Canadian chartered bank that you can now carry in your phone and use anywhere in the world instantaneously, securely, and virtually for free. And they go, yeah, we don't have a problem with that. It's a good analogy, Fred. I'm just wondering whether you cited me to and like it is because you are picking my age or the fact that you know that <laughs> my early days as a backpacker were very much walking the world with those. those, those I also remember, the I remember wearing them, them close to the vest. But these are very good analogies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your fanny and, pack now holds your phone. And exactly, right. I was going to say. Right. The first use of a fanny pack, holding your American Express Traveler's Check. So where do you see it all going then, right? Given the fact you've got these stable coins, you've got this sort of very interesting yield farming, you know, complex looking world of DeFi, along with, yeah, obviously Bitcoin and ETH and everything else. Where do these regulated institutional products fall into that future? Well, that's it. We continue to develop, you know, in one of the reasons we're up here in Northern Canada at an offsite right now. In saying, you know, the potential series of products that we can launch are extraordinary, the opportunities. But what we're seeing with DeFi and NFTs, and, you know, NFTs, it'll change the art world, it'll change the music world, it'll change registration of most anything. And again, this all falls into the decentralized finance space. But what you're seeing is the emergence of amazing other blockchains like Algorand, Cardano, Polkadot, Tezos, Stellar, Solana, you know, five years ago, you couldn't run off these names of these new blockchains that are really finding their purpose. But it's still so early. You know, email was invented in 1982. Most people listening to the show, I know you've got a young audience, but 
most people didn't have an email till 1996. Like it took them 14 years to adopt email. So of course it takes more than 12 years for them to adopt Bitcoin, but it will happen. And the conviction that we have is very, very strong. So Fred, I'm just curious, you know, your mention of NFTs, is there anything that you would think would not belong in an ETF that just wouldn't be appropriate? And if so, I'm curious how you would draw that distinction. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the stable coins, let's say Tether, for example, you call it a US dollar stable coin, you put it in an ETF, well, now it's a money market fund. It is a security. It's not a token. You can't cross the borders with it. It falls under securities laws. Things along those lines you have to be very careful with. Number two, privacy coins. There is no way a government or a regulator is going to allow you to put a token or something that is completely hidden, right? We always used to you know, joke about you know, Monero. Well, what does Monero show you? Well, it shows you the illegal <laughs> businesses going around the world. And all respect to other people at Monero, it's an amazing currency that, again, is a privacy coin. There are a number of privacy coins, but like Dogecoin, like at some point in time, the regulators are going to go, yeah, we're just not going to allow you know, these pyramid schemes, shall we say. And I apologize to all the people at Dogecoin because, <laughs> of course, they've got great use cases and we've got a number of athletes being paid in Dogecoin. But, you know, we're really working in the regulated space. We're really looking for the changes. And somebody always told me this eight years ago. I had about six university students working in my basement saying, OK, Ethereum was just starting. I said, OK, apart from Ethereum, what's going to be the next blockchain? And one of the young guys said, that's easy. It's going to be the next one that gets invented because these are all open source. So yes, Polkadot has advantages over the blockchain that was built before it, or Solana has advantages over Polkadot. And that's what we're going to see. So the development hasn't even started. But out of the 10,000, you know, right now, let's focus on our top 10. Let's make sure everybody's above board. You know, there's so much to do in the regulated environment. The next generation understands it. The past generation probably has missed it, but you know, we like to say just hashtag get off zero or uh, our latest byline is buying crypto as easy as one, two, three IQ. <laughs> I like that idea of the ongoing innovative space. And I think what's interesting in many respects, what you're talking about is, yeah, you're recognizing this fast moving open source environment, but sort of almost figuring out what the bridge is to the traditional regulated world to let the rest of that you know, pre-crypto world, in a way, be a part of it. Do you ever think of it in those terms, that this is actually, you're figuring out how to make these two strange beasts work together? You know what, Michael, you hit the nail right on the head. And unfortunately, at 60 plus, I think my brain's full when it comes to the development <laughs> of the new stuff. But I got a whole pile of 25 to 35-year-olds that come up with ideas and I love them all. Like, it's really so exciting. And we have a business to run. We have to remain focused. You know, we do believe that in one extent, Bitcoin trades 24 hours a day. We'd love to see our fund trading around the world 24 hours a day. I'd love it to be in Hong Kong, Singapore, London, everywhere else. But that's all going to take time. But I think we have the blueprint on how it works. And We'll be ecstatic when, you know, the United States opens up their doors to an ETF. But, you know, 
Free IQ from Montreal, part of our, some of our shareholders includes VanEck and CoinShares, obviously. It's a 3IQ CoinShares ETF. You know, we're really putting together a global presence in this side and putting all the pieces together. And, you know, we expect that regulation will come, but we have to work constructively and positively with the regulators. This isn't a challenging environment. I call it the Ontario Securities Commission took four and a half years or five years of due diligence to get the product right. We got the product right. And that's why Canada has started to open up. But we travel the world and the whole world is looking at the Canadian experiment. And I know that, you know, the SEC will come and support us as well. You know, Fred, I was just picking up on something you said there that just piqued my interest. And that was, you said, you know, you wish the fund was trading 24-7 in the same way that Bitcoin is. Just to give us a sense for our viewers and listeners, what happens in those interim periods? What have you seen, right, between, say, the close on Friday and the open on Monday? Because we know how volatile, how much things can change over the courses of a weekend in the Bitcoin market. What kind of behavior are you seeing with regards to those open and close periods? Well, we're listed on the NASDAQ in Dubai, first and foremost. Now, Dubai, if you had their extended trading hours, you know, has the potential of giving us a very, you know, broad, almost 20 hours a day, if not a little more. But Dubai is closed on Friday, but it's open on Sunday. So we've now got six days of trading coming around, you know, but what we've seen is the challenges that we have have to do with technical things. It's security settlement. Like, why do we trade at a 2% premium in Dubai and a 5% discount in Canada? Somebody should be arbitraging that all day yeah. long. Like a <laughs> the stock yeah, the stock settlement process isn't there yet. And everybody says, well, we'll wait for the volumes and then we'll arbitrage it. But unless you start arbitraging, we're not going to get the volume. So it's one of those. So, you know, being a leader and a pioneer, nobody's listed in 10 markets on the security before. So we are looking at, again, trying to get those markets. We have great conversations with people. You know, we think the MENA region, both, you know, uh, the Middle East and North Africa and Europe, Sweden and Switzerland and Europe have an awful lot of products, but they're all exchange traded products. So they're derivative based products that aren't necessarily backed by physical the way we are. We think the Canadian product is cleaner and it's pure, tracks better. And in fact, in some instances, a Canadian closed end fund could outperform an ETF. But that'll all play out over the next three years and we'll see who's right. But there is enough room in this space for many players. But I think, you know, when people look at the United States and they say, well, GLD was the first gold ETF. So whoever gets the first Bitcoin ETF, I can pretty much think that, you know, you're going to get 10 at the same time. So uh, the race will (laughs) be on for the, you know, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it looks like it. Yeah. Well, Fred, thank you so much for joining us to walk us through this wild world. You know, it's not the first time our neighbors to the north in Canada have been ahead of impression on something and the rest of us have followed. So we'll have to see, I think, what happens in the United States and what direction this takes if there is movement in line with SEC Gary Gensler's statements or whether there's going to be maybe something else that happens. Maybe we're going to see more creativity and venomous all around the world. But Thank you so much for taking the time with us today, walking us through all of this. Congratulations on your leadership. It's really paving the way for something I think is going to be quite exciting in this space. Thanks as always to my co-host, Michael Casey, and join us again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. 
been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and Fred Pye. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Jonas, produced by Michelle Mousseau, and announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast.coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>